Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half an hour. Now, any of you who have been following the news uh, for the last week or two will have noticed that there's been a lot of discussion about the history of civil rights in the United States. A lot of discussion about the civil rights movement. It was recently Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which, of course, came with a lot of different ceremonies and a lot of different uh, historical discussions about the legacy of civil rights and where we are with civil rights. But when I take a look at the civil rights movement, especially in my line of work as an activist, what I like to do is to take a look at the individual stories. Because one of the things that we find about great injustices like like segregation was, and segregation had been in place uh, more or less since the Reconstruction after the American Civil War in the late 1860s, is that people take a look at an injustice this big and their assumption is that they can't do anything, that, you know, that they're too small, that they don't have enough talent, that the injustice is too big, and there's just really nothing that they can do. But looking at little stories shows us that Great injustice brings opportunity for great actions insofar as that we cannot dictate the injustices of our times, but we can dictate what our reactions to those injustices are. And uh, the woman I had the privilege of interviewing today is someone that I, I first saw on an extremely famous painting. Norman Rockwell is actually uh, one of my favorite artists. I have a lot of his paintings hanging in my house. Uh, I have a book of his paintings. I always thought that he captured a very well uh, the sort of idyllic 1950s ideal in the United States, showing kids playing in the field and building tree houses and fishing in the pond. But he has a couple of, of, of much more dramatic paintings, of much more gripping paintings. One of them actually shows uh, a murdered African-American in Mississippi, but another one of them, uh, probably one of his most famous paintings, is of a, a little six-year-old African-American girl uh, and flanked by federal marshals. And on the wall behind her, you see a, you know, a splattered tomato, uh, a racist expletive scrawled on the wall in blood red. And that little girl's name was Ruby Bridges. Now, on November 14, 1960, uh, the first day that black children were given permission to attend the same schools as white children, Ruby Bridges went to school. And she went to a desegregated, or I should say, newly integrated school for the first time. And she faced so much hatred and so much viciousness that federal marshals had to protect this girl from shrieking and yelling crowds of racists who were so infuriated that this little girl wanted to attend a school and get the same quality of education as everyone else. Now, I don't want to tell too much of her story because I was privileged to get a hold of Ruby Bridges earlier this week and have a discussion with her about her story. And and she talked to me about what it was like to be the only African-American girl in an all-white school, what it was like to essentially brave this racist gauntlet of yelling people, and what it was like to have her family face persecution just for the right to get a basic education. So without further ado, I'd like to share with you the story of Ruby Bridges. To get started, if, if you could just uh, tell our listeners a bit about your story. You were uh, the only African-American girl attending a school that was newly desegregated. Absolutely. On November the 14th, 1960, um, the public school systems here in New Orleans 
were um, integrated, and I was one of four six-year-old girls chosen to desegregate two public schools in New Orleans. And so three girls attended one school together, and I attended William France Elementary alone. Um, I was escorted by uh, federal marshals every day that um, drove me to and from school and actually um, escorted me into the building and stayed outside my classroom the whole day for a year. There's famous pictures and, and of course, a famous painting by Norman Rockwell of of the sheer amount of, of hatred that you had to walk through just, just to go to sort of a, a gauntlet of people screaming. What was that like for someone so young? Well, um, you know, living here in New Orleans, I'm accustomed to Mardi Gras, and um, hopefully your listeners are aware of what Mardi Gras is in New Orleans. It's, you know, a huge celebration where the whole city is shut down and uh, there are parades in the streets. So growing up in that kind of environment, the first day of school when I turned the corner and I saw you know, mobs of people standing outside of my school and police officers, you know, everywhere. Um, I actually thought, you know, we had stumbled onto a parade. And that was just the innocence of a six-year-old child. How did you react when you found out that those people were actually angry at you just for wanting to go to school? Um, That didn't really um, kick in for me until, um, you know, what did happen, I should back up, I should say that um, what did happen every day when I um, was escorted into the building, I spent the whole day in an empty classroom with a single teacher that came from Boston to New Orleans to teach me because lots of teachers actually quit their jobs. They didn't want to teach black kids. And so the very first day of school, as I was um, being escorted into the building, I sat in the principal's office all day because all of those people that were outside of the school, they rushed inside of the building and they went into every classroom and they pulled out every child. So over 500 kids um, withdrew from school the very day that I entered the building. And so I spent the majority of my time uh, searching for the kids. I mean, I went to school every day and I, you know, was in this empty classroom, but I knew that kids were supposed to be in school and yet this school seemed so different because I was the only child. Little did I know that um, there were maybe five or six other kids. Um, They were white and their parents had to cross that same mob every day to get their kids uh, into the building. And even though they sent their kids, the principal would take those children and she would hide them so that they would never see me and I wouldn't see them. So that whole year was very, very lonely for me. And um, I didn't realize that that there were a few kids uh, stashed away in the building. I could hear them, but I could never see them. So eventually my teacher um, was constantly going to the principal and threatening to report her to the superintendent for hiding those children. And so I was eventually brought to where those kids were, and uh, a little boy said to me, I can't play with you. I can't play with you because you're a nigger. And once he said that, 
I think all of the pieces kind of came together for me. I realized that, you know, it was about me and the color of my skin, and I realized that that's why all the people were out there. So it took a while, but finally, you know, I understood what it was all about. It was an extremely turbulent time. This is, is 1960s, so sort of right in, in the very heart uh, of the uh, of the civil rights movement. The 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 first Civil Rights Act hadn't even been signed yet by President Johnson. What made your parents decide to put you forward as one of the, of the first African American children in a desegregated school? You know, my parents came from um, Mississippi. When you talk about, you know, being in the heart of um, the civil rights movement, uh, truly Mississippi, Alabama, all of those southern states were, you know, some of the the worst places to be um, during that time. But that's where I was born, and that's where my parents were from, and they were sharecroppers. Um, they were not allowed to attend school if if they had to get the crops in and work. And so neither one of my parents had a formal education. My um, mother, I believe, went to probably seventh or eighth grade, and my father only had a sixth grade education. And so when they heard that their children might have an opportunity to uh, have a better chance at uh, going to college and a better education, I think that that's what they wanted for their children. So they were not activists. You know, they were everyday, ordinary people, very poor. Even at six, I already had probably five other siblings. And so um, I think it was just something that they wanted so badly for their children that they decided to go through with it. Were they aware that there would be such a cost to that action at the time that they decided to send you off to school? I don't think that they were aware of at all. Um I have to say that I, I do remember my mother talking about how the NAACP, you know, who was the organization that was spearheading this movement across the country, uh, along with Dr. King, that they'd come and visit with her and said that there might be some uh, repercussions, but they really didn't know what to expect. I think that they were told that the president would be sending in federal marshals because they knew that there had been problems in other parts of the country, but they had no idea that this would end up, you know, happening for such a long period of time, for a whole year, that people would be uh, threatening to harm them. My father was fired from his job. He was a service station attendant where he worked on cars, a mechanic, and he was fired from his job. His boss told him that all of his customers knew that it was his daughter going to this white school, so he let him go. You know, the street that we lived on, you couldn't come onto the street. It was blocked off and monitored by uh, federal marshals. They got lots of bomb threats. So I don't think they expected that at all. How did your dad react to, you know, realizing that his little girl was getting yelled and screamed at for no reason? That must have been pretty hard for a father to handle. I think it was very hard for my dad. And, and um, you know, my father was really against sending me to the school. My mother convinced him. And I think um, the reasons why my father, again, as you just said, I mean, you know, 
most fathers with their children, and you know, their role is the head of the household and to protect. But my father had also um, been to war. He uh, fought in the Korean War, and having experienced all of that, you know, he said you could you could go to war and you could be on the front line, you know, serving your country. But if you were black, which he was, then you were still just a, a colored soldier. You could be on the front line, you know, fighting with a fellow white soldier, but you couldn't go back to the same barracks and you couldn't eat in the same mess hall. You know, they were still separated, even at war, fighting for the same country. So he felt like, why send me to the school? That it really wasn't going to change things. And so um, he was against it, and the NAACP advised him not to escort me to school, that my mother um, should do it because they thought it would be hard for a father to restrain himself if, if they were actually threatening to harm me. And so my father really wasn't allowed to escort me to school, uh, and my mother did, and even with her, you know, she was only able to do it, you know, three or four times. And then after that, I was escorted alone by federal marshal. And I can see why, because you've written in the past that, that one of the things that scared you the most is when a, a woman in the mob brought a coffin, and there was a little black doll in that coffin. But you also say that one of the things that helped helps you to remain calm during this very turbulent year was the fact that you would you would pray for the people who were screaming at you. That's very true. Um, they would come to school. I mean, first of all, they would come every day and get off buses. And uh, they were boycotting. So they would march in front of the school every day uh, from the beginning of school until school closed. And I would have to pass them to get through the crowd inside of the building because they were standing in front of the building. And even though I had federal marshals, there were times when they would bring the small coffin and inside was this black doll that they dressed up and put in the coffin. And so you know, whenever I remember being frightened, it was whenever I saw the coffin because I used to have nightmares about it. And so my mom would always say, oh, you know, if I'm not with you and you're afraid, you know, you can always say your prayers. And I believed in my prayers because whenever I would have those nightmares, if I said my prayers and prayed, the nightmares would go away. And so I believed that, you know, I should pray for them. You know, she would always jokingly say, all oh, those people are crazy they need praying for. And I took it literally. So I would, you know, say my prayers before school and, and after school. And if I forgot to say them, I would go back and say my prayers. And I think even then, you know, um, even though I wasn't aware of it, but uh, I so believed in prayer. I think that was just building my faith. I didn't realize it now, but now being 60 years old, you know, I absolutely stand on my faith and believe in the power of prayer. You said that one of the most important things you learned actually was how faith became so important to you and, and, and helped you realize personally what the message of the Civil Rights Movement was as well, was that everybody is a unique human being created by God and that this is why everyone should be equal in the first place. I really did. I mean, I think what I, I can honestly say to you that what really helped me kind of form those beliefs is um, it was very easy for me to get past the mob and inside of the building, but every day there was a white woman there to greet me 
who absolutely loved me. Um, children know when they're being loved. And I knew that she really cared for me. She made school fun. She did everything imaginable in, in that classroom to keep my mind off of what was going on outside. I loved school so much, I never missed a day. And so it was easy for me to look at her and see that she looked exactly like the mob outside. She was, you know, she was white as well, but she was different. She was different. She wasn't mean and hateful and, you know, she showed me her heart. And I knew at that point that even though she looked like them, she wasn't like them. And I think that that is the lesson that shaped me into who I am today. Looking at her, I knew that I couldn't judge her the same way as I could judge the people outside. And so it was, it was easy to take away from that experience the message that Dr. King has tried to instill in all of us that you should never look at a person and judge them by the color of their skin, but you absolutely have to allow yourself an opportunity to get to know that person. The color of your skin has nothing to do with your heart. And I think that that is so prevalent today. You know, I think we are being divided across the country, across the world. We are being divided but I don't think it has anything to do with the color of our skin. I think that we are being divided by good and evil. And we see uh, examples of that all across the world. It is good and evil that's dividing us. And evil will use any one of us. Evil does not care what you look like. And so my philosophy is if we are about what's good, why should we care? If you are uh, a good person and you and I are of like minds, it doesn't matter to me what you look like. I want you on my team. And I think it's time that we look around the world and understood that we are being divided and it is good and evil and we need to choose a side. And the, the teacher you mentioned who did choose a side, her name was Barbara Henry. Why? Barbara Henry. You still are in contact with her. You still speak with her. Why did she, of all the teachers in the whole school, dedicate herself to teaching one child and doing so in a fashion that she knew would threaten her teaching career? Barbara actually came from Boston. She came from the north to New Orleans because her husband was in the military and stationed here in the south, and she was looking for a teacher's position. But she had been accustomed to teaching different uh, nationalities because she had also taught in um, military bases, teaching those kids. And so uh, she was not a prejudiced person. It didn't matter to her what I looked like. And so she took the job. And, you know, as she said, <laughs> you know, she said it was a love story for her that the minute she laid eyes on me. She just kind of fell in love with the child and that we were in that classroom and in our own world. And it had nothing to do with the hatred that was going on outside. And uh, that's her story. And, you know, I felt it. And my experience was very different from, I, I would have to say, the other three girls that integrated the other school. 
they didn't have that same kind of teacher. So, you know, I understand that love can prevail over evil and hatred. When did you really understand the the historical significance of of what it was that you were doing? Because obviously you were far too young to realize the significance of of being the first African-American child in in a white school. But when did you first realize that the name Ruby Bridges would, would show up in all the histories of the Civil Rights Movement? I didn't realize that. I mean, you know, after that year was over, I think um, pretty much people just wanted to forget it. And so it was kind of swept under the rug and and never discussed pretty much in the city. My parents ended up divorcing uh, by the time I was in seventh grade. And so it wasn't really discussed in my household. So I grew up, you know, still very poor very ordinary life. I knew that there was something better outside of my own community, but I didn't have access to that. And so not until I was probably about 18 or 19 years old did I even see the famous Norman Rockwell painting. And at that point, uh, a reporter explained to me, you know, that it was me and that it was Norman Rockwell and how important it was. And I think it You know, it made sense, again, at that point, that this wasn't something that just happened in my own neighborhood, that it was something that the whole world watched unfold, and that it was significant, and it did have meaning, but that didn't happen for me right away. What happened when you did realize it? I realized that at that point, I think it, um, it gave me something to strive for. I then realized that, um, you know, there was a way out of my neighborhood that was poor and poverty-stricken. And uh, I think it just gave me the drive that I needed to, you know, to pursue that, to pursue something better. And um, I wanted to, you know, get outside of my community to see the wider world. And so I thought the only way to do that is to become a flight attendant or a travel agent. Right. I mean, I, that was as far as my mind could grasp at the time. And so I ended up going to school and studying in travel and tourism and uh, landed a job with American Express and became a travel counselor which afforded me the opportunity to travel and see the world. And so I thought that what I should do is seize on that opportunity and travel abroad, and I did that. And so it pretty much it, it showed me that, you know, the world was much, much bigger than the Ninth Ward in New Orleans. And, uh, again, it helped shape me into the person I am today. It allowed me an opportunity to meet different people from all over the world. And, you know, it just continued to instill in me that, you know, the color of your skin and where you come from has nothing to do with your heart. And so not until I was probably about 30 years old after being married and had kids of my own did I kind of go back to my history and I wanted to work with kids and I wanted to spread my message across the country. And uh, I guess the rest is history. That's what I'm doing today. What's the message you bring to people when you go and speak to them? 
Well, uh, the majority of my time is spent in schools, and because my experience comes from that of a child, I felt like I wanted to work with kids. I remembered that little boy saying that he, you know, he couldn't play with me because his mom said not to. It made me understand that uh, racism is something that we're not born with, that it's something that's passed on to us. Right. And if it starts with kids, then I think that's where I should start, through trying to shape that message in them. And so I'm in schools. I um, tell my story. I tell other stories of the civil rights movement. Uh, The civil rights movement wasn't just about black and white against one another. There were black and whites that came together, um, that fought together, and some of them died together so that we all could have equal rights. Um, the way history is taught here in, in, um, in the States is that, um, you know, it's still one-sided. And I believe that, you know, it's not just black history. It's our shared history. It should be taught that way. And so that's what I do in schools. And then I kind of open it up for them to talk to me and to ask me questions. And so I think that I uh, have an opportunity to see hope that most people don't see because I see it in our young people uh-huh. in schools across the country. So my message basically is, you know, racism has no place in the hearts and minds of our children, that we absolutely need to give each other a chance to get to know one another because you'll never know when and who you will need at any given time. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story with us. Well, I appreciate you uh, being interested in it, and I do hope that your listeners enjoyed it, and I hope that um, we all take the opportunity to uh, understand that it is good and evil. It has nothing to do with the color of our skin. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Ruby Bridges, one of the first African-American children to attend a newly desegregated or integrated school, sharing with us the story of the civil rights and giving us just one personal testimony out of a huge and courageous movement that brings so many stories like this. We're hoping to go through a lot of different stories over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to be traveling overseas, but I've managed to uh, conduct a lot of interviews with people who responded with great courage to very difficult circumstances and just did what they could to stand up for their neighbors and how those actions had a tremendous ripple effect and save lives. We hope you enjoyed this interview and we hope you'll, you'll consider joining us again uh, next week. Thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend.